Chapter Eight, Part One of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Eight, Part One. Escape from the Ice. On April 7th at daylight, the long-desired peak of Clarence Island came into view, bearing nearly north from our camp. At first it had the appearance of a huge berg, but with the growing light we could see plainly the black lines of scree and the high precipitous cliffs of the island, which were miraged up to some extent. The dark rocks in the white snow were a pleasant sight. So long had our eyes looked on icebergs, that apparently grew or dwindled according to the angles at which the shadows were cast by the sun. So often had we discovered rocky islands and brought in sight of the peaks of Joinville land, only to find them, after some change of wind or temperature, floating away as nebulous cloud or ordinary berg. That not until Worsley, Wilde, and Hurley had unanimously confirmed my observation was I satisfied that I really was looking at Clarence Island. The land was still more than sixty miles away, but it had to our eyes something of the appearance of home, since we expected to find there our first solid footing after all the long months of drifting on the unstable ice. We had adjusted ourselves to the life on the floe, but our hopes had been fixed all the time on some possible landing-place. As one hope failed to materialise, our anticipations fed themselves on another. Our drifting home had no rudder to guide it, no sail to give it speed. We were dependent upon the caprice of wind and current. We went whither these irresponsible forces listed. The longing to feel solid earth under our feet filled our hearts. In the full day Clarence Island ceased to look like land, and had the appearance of a berg of more than eight or ten miles away. So deceptive are distances in the clear air of the Antarctic. The sharp white peaks of Elephant Island show to the west of north a little later in the day. I have stopped issuing sugar now, and our meals consist of seal meat and blubber only, with seven ounces of dried milk per day for the party, I wrote. Each man receives a pinch of salt, and the milk is boiled up to make hot drinks for all hands. The diet suits us, since we cannot get much exercise on the flow, and the blubber supplies heat. Fried slices of blubber seem to our taste to resemble crisp bacon. It certainly is no hardship to eat it, though persons living under civilized conditions probably would shudder at it. The hardship would come if we were unable to get it. I think that the palate of the human animal can adjust itself to anything. Some creatures will die before accepting a strange diet if deprived of their natural food. The yaks of the Himalayan uplands must feed from the growing grass, scanty and dry though it may be, and would starve even if allowed the best oats and corn. We still have the dark water sky of the last week with us to the south-west and west, round to the north-east. We are leaving all the bergs to the west, and there are few within our range of vision now. The swell is more marked today, and I feel sure that we are at the verge of the floe ice. One strong gale, followed by a calm, would scatter the pack, I think 
and then we could push through. I have been thinking much of our prospects. The appearance of Clarence Island after a long drift seems, somehow, to convey an ultimatum. The island is the last outpost of the south, and our final chance of a landing place. Beyond it lies the broad Atlantic. Our little boats may be compelled any day now to sail unsheltered over the open sea, with the thousand leagues of ocean separating them from the land to the north and east. It seems vital that we shall land on Clarence Island, or its neighbour Elephant Island. The latter island has attraction for us, although, as far as I know, nobody has ever landed there. Its name suggests the presence of the plump and succulent sea-elephant. We have an increasing desire in any case to get firm ground under our feet. The flow has been a good friend to us, but it is reaching the end of its journey, and it is liable any time now to break up and fling us into the unplumbed sea. A little later, after reviewing the whole situation in the light of our circumstances, I made up my mind that we should try to reach Deception Island. The relative positions of Clarence, Elephant, and Deception Island can be seen on the chart. The two islands first named lay comparatively near to us, and were separated by some eighty miles of water from Prince George Island, which was about a hundred and fifty miles away from our camp on the berg. From this island, a chain of similar islands extends westward, terminating in Deception Island. The channels separating these desolate patches of rock and ice are from ten to fifteen miles wide, but we knew from the Admiralty sailing directions that there were stores for the use of shipwrecked mariners on Deception Island, and it was possible that the summer whalers had not yet deserted its harbour. Also, we had learned from our scanty records that a small church had been erected there for the benefit of the transient whalers. The existence of this building would mean to us a supply of timber, from which, if dire necessity urged us, we could construct a reasonably seaworthy boat. We had discussed this point during our drift on the floe. Two of our boats were fairly strong, but the third, the James Cayard, was light, although a little longer than the others. All of them were small for the navigation of these notoriously stormy seas, and they would be heavily loaded, so a voyage in the open water would be a serious undertaking. I fear that the carpenter's fingers were already itching to convert pews into topsides and decks. In any case, the worst that could befall us when we had reached Deception Island would be a wait until the whalers returned about the middle of November. Another bit of information gathered from the records of the west side of the Weddell Sea related to Prince George Island. The Admiralty sailing directions, referring to the South Shetlands, mentioned a cave on this island. None of us had seen that cave or could say if it was large or small, wet or dry. But as we drifted on our flow, and later, when navigating the treacherous leads and making our uneasy night camps, that cave seemed to my fancy to be a palace which in contrast would dim the splendours of Versailles. The swell increased that night, and the movement of the ice became more pronounced. Occasionally a neighbouring flow would hammer against the ice on which we were camped, and the lesson of these flows was plain to read. We must get solid ground under our feet quickly. When the vibration ceased after a heavy surge, my thoughts flew to the problem ahead. 
If the party had not numbered more than six men, a solution would not have been so hard to find. But obviously the transportation of the whole party to a place of safety, with the limited means at our disposal, was going to be a matter of extreme difficulty. There were twenty-eight men on our floating cake of ice, which was steadily dwindling under the influence of wind, weather, changing flows, and heavy swell. I confess that I felt the burden of responsibility sit heavily on my shoulders, but, on the other hand, I was stimulated and cheered by the attitude of the men. Loneliness is the penalty of leadership, but the man who has to make the decisions is assisted greatly if he feels that there is no uncertainty in the minds of those who follow him, and that his orders will be carried out confidently and in expectation of success. The sun was shining on the blue sky on the following morning, April 8th. Clarence Island showed clearly on the horizon, and Elephant Island could also be distinguished. The single snow-clad peak of Clarence Island stood up as a beacon of safety, though the most optimistic imagination could not make an easy path of the ice and ocean that separated us from that giant, white and austere. The pack was much looser this morning, and the long rolling swell from the northeast is more pronounced than it was yesterday. The flows rise and fall with the surge of the sea. We evidently are drifting with the surface current, for all the heavier masses of flow, bergs and hummocks, are being left behind. There has been some discussion in the camp as to the advisability of making one of the bergs our home for the time being, and drifting with it to the west. The idea is not sound. I cannot be sure that the berg would drift in the right direction. If it did move west and carried us into the open water, what would our fate be when we tried to launch the boats down the steep sides of the berg, in the sea-swell after the surrounding flows had left us? One must reckon, too, the chance of the berg splitting, or even overturning during our stay. It is not possible to gauge the condition of a big mass of ice by surface appearance. The ice may have a fault, and when the wind, current, and swell set up strains and tensions, the line of weakness may reveal itself suddenly and disastrously. No, I do not like the idea of drifting on a berg. We must stay on our flow till conditions improve, and then make another attempt to advance towards the land. At 6.30 p.m., a particularly heavy shock went through our flow. The watchmen and other members of the party made an immediate inspection, and found a crack right under the James Cayard, and between the other two boats in the main camp. Within five minutes the boats were over the crack and close to the tents. The trouble was not caused by a blow from another flow. We could see that the piece of ice we occupied had slewed, and now presented its long axis towards the oncoming swell. The flow, therefore, was pitching in the manner of a ship, and it had cracked across when the swell lifted the centre, leaving the two ends comparatively unsupported. We were now on a triangular rift of ice, the three sides measuring, roughly, ninety, a hundred, and a hundred and twenty yards. Night came down dull and overcast, and before midnight the wind had freshened from the west. We could see that the pack was opening under the influence of wind, wave, and current, and I felt that the time for launching the boats was near at hand. 
Indeed, it was obvious that even if the conditions were unfavourable for a start during the coming day, we could not safely stay on the floe many hours longer. The movement of the ice and the swell was increasing, and the floe might split right under our camp. We had made preparations for quick action if anything of the kind occurred. Our case would be desperate if the ice broke into small pieces, not large enough to support our party, and not loose enough to permit the use of the boats. The following day was Sunday, April 9th, but it proved no day of rest for us. Many of the important events of our expedition occurred on Sundays, and this particular day was to see our forced departure from the floe on which we had lived for nearly six months, and the start of our journeyings in the boats. This has been an eventful day. The morning was fine, though somewhat overcast by stratus and cumulus clouds, moderate south-southwesterly and south-easterly breezes. We hoped that with this wind the ice would drift nearer to Clarence Island. At 7 a.m. lanes of water and leads could be seen on the horizon to the west. The ice separating us from the lanes was loose, but did not appear to be workable for the boats. The long swell from the north-west was coming in more freely than on the previous day, and was driving the floes together in the utmost confusion. The loose brash between the masses of ice was being churned to mud-like consistency, and no boat could have lived in the channels that opened and closed around us. Our own floe was suffering in the general disturbance, and after breakfast I ordered the tents to be struck, and everything prepared for an immediate start when the boats could be launched. I had decided to take the James Caird myself, with Wild and eleven men. This was the largest of our boats, and, in addition to a human complement, she carried the major portion of the stores. Worsley had charge of the Dudley Docker, with nine men, and Hudson and Crean with the senior men, on the Stankham Wills. Soon after breakfast the ice closed again. We were standing by, with our preparations as complete as they could be made, when, at eleven a.m., our floe suddenly split right across under the boats. We rushed our gear onto the larger of the two pieces, and watched, with strained attention for the next development. The crack had cut through the sight of my tent. I stood on the edge of the new fracture, and, looking across the widening channel of water, could see the spot where, for many months, my head and shoulders had rested when I was in my sleeping-bag. The depression formed by my body and legs was on our side of the crack. The ice had sunk under my weight during the months of waiting in the tent, and I had many times put snow under the bag to fill the hollow. The lines of stratification showed clearly the different layers of snow. How fragile and precarious had been our resting-place! Yet usage had dulled our sense of danger. The flow had become our home, and during the early months of the drift we had almost ceased to realise that it was but a sheet of ice floating on unfathomed seas. Now our home was being shattered under our feet, and we had a sense of loss and incompleteness hard to describe. The fragments of our flow came together again a little later, and we had our lunch of seal-meat, all hands eating their fill. I thought that a good meal would be the best possible preparation for the journey that now seemed imminent, 
and as we would not be able to take all our meat with us when we finally moved, we could regard every pound eaten as a pound rescued. The call to action came at 1 p.m. The pack opened well, and the channels became navigable. The conditions were not all one could have desired, but it was best not to wait any longer. The Dudley Docker and the Stancomb Wills were launched quickly. Stores were thrown in, and the two boats were pulled clear of the immediate flows towards a pool of open water, three miles broad, in which floated a lone and mighty berg. The James Caird was the last boat to leave, heavily loaded with stores and odds and ends of camp equipment. Many things regarded by us as essentials at that time were to be discarded a little later, as the pressure of the primitive became more severe. Man can sustain life with very scanty means. The trappings of civilization are soon cast aside in the face of stern realities, and, given the barest opportunity of winning food and shelter, man can live, and even find his laughter ringing true. The three boats were a mile away from our flow home at 2 p.m. We had made our way through the channels and had entered the big pool, when we saw a rush of foam-clad water and tossing ice approaching us, like a tidal bore of a river. The pack was being impelled to the east by a tide-rip, and two huge masses of ice were driving down upon us on converging courses. The James Caird was leading. Starboarding the helm and bending strongly to the oars, we managed to get clear. The two other boats followed us though from their position astern at first they had not realised the immediate danger. The Stancomb Wills was the last boat, and she was very nearly caught, but by great exertion she was kept just ahead of the driving ice. It was an unusual and startling experience. The effect of tidal action on ice is not often as marked as it was that day. The advancing ice, accompanied by a large wave, appeared to be travelling at about three knots and if we had not succeeded in pulling clear, we would certainly have been swamped. We pulled hard for an hour to windward of the berg that lay in the open water. The swell was crushing on its perpendicular sides, and throwing spray to a height of sixty feet. Evidently there was an ice foot at the east end, for the swell broke before it reached the berg face, and flung its white spray onto the blue ice wall. We might have paused to have admired the spectacle under other conditions, but night was coming on apace, and we needed a camping place. As we steered north-west, still amid the ice floes, the Dudley Docker got jammed between two masses, while attempting to make a shortcut. The old adage about a shortcut being the longest way round is often as true in the Antarctic as it is in the peaceful countryside. The James Caird got a line aboard the Dudley Docker, and after some hauling the boat was brought clear of the ice again. We hastened forward in the twilight in search of a flat, old floe, and presently found a fairly large piece rocking in the swell. It was not an ideal camping-place by any means, but darkness had overtaken us. We hauled the boats up, and by 8 p.m. had the tents pitched and the blubber stove burning cheerily. Soon all hands were well fed and happy in their tents, and snatches of song came to me as I wrote up my log. Some intangible feeling of uneasiness made me leave my tent about 11 p.m. that night, 
and glance around the quiet camp. The stars between the snow flurries showed that the flow had swung round and was end on to the swell, a position exposing it to sudden strains. I started to walk across the flow in order to warn the watchman to look carefully for cracks, and as I was passing the men's tent, the flow lifted on the crest of a swell and cracked right under my feet. The men were in one of the dome-shaped tents, and it began to stretch apart as the ice opened. A muffled sound, suggestive of suffocation, came from beneath the stretching tent. I rushed forward, helped some emerging men from under the canvas, and called out, "'Are you all right?' "'There are two in the water,' somebody answered. The crack had widened to about four feet, and as I threw myself down at the edge, I saw a whitish object floating in the water. It was a sleeping bag with a man inside. I was able to grasp it, and with a heave lifted man and bag onto the flow. A few seconds later the ice edges came together again with tremendous force. Fortunately there had been but one man in the water, or the incident might have been a tragedy. The rescued bag contained Holness, who was wet down to the waist but otherwise unscathed. The crack was now opening again. The James K. had my tent on the one side of the opening, and the remaining two boats and the rest of the camp on the other side. With two or three men to help me, I struck my tent. Then all hands manned the painter, and rushed the James K. across the opening crack. We held on to the rope, while, one by one, the men left on our side of the floe jumped the channel, or scrambled over by means of the boat. Finally I was left alone. The night had swallowed all the others, and the rapid movement of the ice forced me to let go the painter. For a moment I felt that my piece of rocking flow was the loneliest place in the world. Peering into the darkness, I could just see the dark figures on the other flow. I hailed Wild, ordering him to launch the Stancomb wheels, but I need not have troubled. His quick brain had anticipated the order, and already the boat was being manned and hauled to the ice edge. Two or three minutes later she reached me, and I was ferried across to the camp. We were now on a piece of flat ice, about two hundred foot long, and a hundred foot wide. There was no more sleep for any of us that night. The killers were blowing in the lanes around, and we waited for daylight and watched for signs of another crack in the ice. The hours passed with laggard feet, as we stood huddled together, or walked to and fro in the effort to keep some warmth in our bodies. We lit the blubber stove at three a.m., and with pipes going and a cup of hot milk for each man, we were able to discover some bright spots in our outlook. At any rate, we were on the move at last, and if dangers and difficulties lay ahead, we could meet and overcome them. No longer were we drifting helplessly at the mercy of wind and current. The first glimmerings of dawn came at 6 a.m., and I waited anxiously for the full daylight. The swell was growing, and at times our ice was surrounded closely by similar pieces. At 6.30 a.m. we had hot hoosh, and then stood by waiting for the pack to open. Our chance came at 8, when we launched the boats, loaded them, and started to make our way through the lanes in a northerly direction, 
but James Caird was in the lead, with the Stancomb wheels next, and the Dudley Docker bringing up the rear. In order to make the boats more seaworthy, we had left some of our shovels, picks, and dried vegetables on the floe, and for a long time we could see the abandoned stores forming a dark spot on the ice. The boats were still heavily loaded. We got out of the lanes and entered a stretch of open water at 11 a.m. A strong easterly breeze was blowing, but the fringe of pack ice outside protected us from the full force of the swell, just as the coral reef of a tropical island checks the rollers of the Pacific. Our way was across the open sea, and soon after noon we swung round the north end of the pack and laid a course to the westward, the James Caird still in the lead. Immediately our deeply laden boats began to make heavy weather. They shipped sprays, which, freezing as they fell, covered men and gear with ice, and it was soon clear that we could not safely proceed. I put the James Caird round, and ran for the shelter of the pack again, the other boats following. Back inside the outer line of ice, the sea was not breaking. This was at 3 p.m., and all hands were tired and cold. A big floeberg resting peacefully ahead caught my eye, and about half an hour later we had hauled up the boats and pitched camp for the night. It was a fine, big blueberg, with an attractively solid appearance and from our camp we could get a good view of the surrounding sea and ice. The highest point was about fifteen foot above sea level. After a hot meal, all hands except the watchman turned in. Everyone was in need of rest after the troubles of the previous night, and the unaccustomed strain of the last thirty-six hours at the oars. The berg appeared well able to withstand the battering of the sea, and too deep and massive to be seriously affected by the swell. But it was not as safe as it looked. About midnight the watchman called me, and showed me that the heavy northwesterly swell was undermining the ice. A great piece had broken off within eight feet of my tent. We made what inspection was possible in the darkness, and found that on the westward side of the berg the thick snow covering was yielding rapidly to the attacks of the sea. An ice foot had just formed under the surface of the water. I decided that there was no immediate danger, and did not call the men. The northwesterly wind strengthened during the night. End of chapter 8, part 1